Welcome to the Speaking Light into Abortion podcast, where I talk about all the reasons it's possible for you to thrive after your abortion. I'm your host, Amanda Kingsley, and two years after my own abortion, I certified as a life coach so I could serve women after abortion in all the ways they've been deserving and lacking for centuries. Consider this your launchpad for finding strength and community in yourselves and in each other. All right, podcasting again. This year is flying by already. I think the older you get, the faster the years go by. <laughs> I think that's true. I think that's true. Really, like, March already. Oh my goodness. Um, it's so good though. Um, so and having a podcast to mark your weeks going by is the most amazing thing. <laughs> and my guest today also has a podcast. So today um, on the podcast is Garnet Henderson. And you, as a listener, may or may not yet have found the podcast called Access, and it's a podcast about abortion, essentially. Um, the first time I listened to it, I'm always like, is this going to be just like mine? Which obviously not. None of them are the same. <laughs> and I was like, oh, so good. So many good and different podcasts about abortion. So welcome here. Thanks. I will let you do another introduction of yourself if you feel like there's some a way you want to introduce yourself to my listeners um, and then we'll talk about podcasting and abortion. Sure, sure. Um, my name is Garnet Henderson. I am a freelance journalist. I report on health and specifically a lot on abortion access. So that's what led me to create my podcast, which as you said is called Access, a podcast about abortion. Yeah, I love um, somewhere you say answering the questions you're afraid to ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I exactly. I love that. And I feel like that's a lot of the work I do too. But in my world, it's about emotions and mental health and healing in that mm -hmm. way. But the way, like just being willing to like, for there to be people in the world who answer those questions that we know everyone has, we're just afraid to talk about or ask. Mm -hmm. I know when I had my abortion, I felt a lot of, because I was already a doula and in women's health, I felt a lot of like, I should know the answer. Mm. I should already know this. I shouldn't be so confused right now. Um, and so when we have these podcasts that answer those questions, like such a gift. I did not have your podcast when I had my abortion. <laughs> now I get to share it with other people. Um, tell us um, when you started podcasting and why podcasting and not blogging or just continuing like writing journalism. Sure. Um, well, I still do write, but yeah. what made me want to start the podcast is that I was finding that a lot of people including and perhaps especially people who consider themselves pro-choice mm -hmm. um, don't actually know very much about abortion because it's so stigmatized we never really talk about it and so I found myself often having to do a lot of explaining to editors to even get them to understand why I felt that certain stories were important um, because as a freelancer I'm usually pitching the ideas to my editor um, and 
yeah, I just found that I was often having to say, no, believe me, this story is worth telling. It's really important. And here's why. And just having to do a lot of convincing. And I also found that just when I would talk to people at parties, you know, back before there was a pandemic and we went to parties (laughs) and I would tell them what I did at first people would respond kind of awkwardly when I would say, oh, I write a lot about abortion access, Mm -hmm. but then they would end up just asking me so many questions and be so surprised and intrigued by a lot of the answers. So that's what gave me the idea to create a podcast and to kind of break it down, tackle a different topic in every episode. And I was particularly interested in podcasting as a medium partly just because I like podcasts I listen to a lot of them but also because I did think it would be really valuable for people to hear um, the actual voices of people who've had abortions who provide abortions there's something that is so humanizing about that and just gives a dimension that's simply not there in print reporting no matter how descriptive I am so I had a big plan for the show before the pandemic started. Um, I was going to travel a lot to report it. Obviously, all of that went out the window in March. So I decided to just go ahead and produce the show in whatever way I could. And so I started working on that in the spring of 2020 and started releasing episodes uh, over the summer. Awesome. I love it. What are some of your... um your favorite like I want to say favorite episodes but like what has surprised you in the creation of the podcast because I'm sure you step into like a new layer of like I thought I understood this and now that I'm podcasting about it kind of broke through another layer Mm -hmm. so tell us about some of your favorite episodes sure um well the very first episode is just about what actually happens during an abortion And that was based on a press tour that I was able to do a couple of years ago um, where I visited a whole woman's health clinic in Texas. And they basically took a group of journalists through what the patient experience is like at the clinic, what the intake process is. And then they explained uh, how medication abortion works and how aspiration abortion works. So the first the two first trimester abortion procedures. And that is a big part of what inspired the podcast because even among that group of journalists, Mm. all of whom had a lot of experience reporting on abortion, we all learned things that we didn't know that day. And I wanted to translate that experience for the audience. Um, And one thing I remember that really stood out to me about that because I have an IUD is just how similar uh, an IUD insertion is to a first trimester abortion. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really like the same procedure with a slightly different purpose. Um, And so that really stuck with me. And then let's see. Like we have this one thing that's so normalized and normalized and accepted called the IUD. And then we have this other thing that now has a label of pregnancy termination or abortion it's essentially the same thing happening in the body with two different stories and narratives around it. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially all the initial steps in the procedure are the same, you know, inserting a speculum, 
using an instrument called a tenaculum to basically stabilize the cervix. Um, and then, you know, in an abortion, they dilate the cervix. With an IUD insertion, usually they sound the uterus to kind of measure it, but it's the same thing. They're inserting yeah. something into the cervix, which right. hurts. Right. Um, <laughs> the uterus itself is essentially the same thing. Yeah, it's really, really similar. Um, and then I think, you know, the pandemic has touched every single episode in some way, which obviously is something I didn't envision in my initial plan for the podcast, but it comes up in every single episode. And so that's something where I feel like I am just hearing about a lot of things I didn't expect to hear, reporting on things that nobody ever expected to happen, like clinics being shut down for about a month in Texas in late March and early April. Um, people really struggling to access abortion because they weren't able to travel or they didn't feel safe traveling. Um, and then all of the issues around medication abortion uh, now has been a really interesting time because the pandemic has led a lot of providers, but only in states that don't ban telemedicine. <laughs> mm -hmm. The pandemic has led a lot of providers to prescribe medication abortion 100% via telemedicine. Whereas previously in the US, in order to get an abortion by telemedicine, you still had to go into a clinic for an ultrasound. So you could connect with the doctor maybe via video chat if the doctor was at a different location and they would prescribe you the pills, but you still had to go somewhere to mm -hmm. some clinic in person to get an ultrasound. Even though we, you know, experts knew and there was data to support the fact that ultrasounds really are not necessary in most cases. Uh, and the pandemic is the first ever test case in the United States of more widespread provision of medication abortion without that ultrasound. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been really interesting. Study by default. Yes, it's a large study by default, absolutely. There's a study that just got published although it's based on data from the UK, but it did find that um, first trimester medication abortion fully provided by telemedicine, so no ultrasound, is just as safe and effective as the in-person model. And so I hope we'll have some similar data that we can show on that for mm -hmm. the United States because you know, medication abortion really would be so much more accessible without people having to go in person for an ultrasound and without having to go in person to pick up the medication, which is a whole second issue. Yeah, and there's so many logistics, like even if you're lucky enough to have a clinic in your area, there's like the childcare logistics and the like so many things that the, um, you know, needing to keep your privacy and like so many things or wanting, I should say, to keep your privacy, but yeah, but it is, it will be really interesting to see how the pandemic shifts things in the, it's gonna be many years too, before we realize all the pieces. I just saw a statistic yesterday or this morning about um, second trimester abortions increasing by like 40% because, and this had to do with Texas, right? It had to do with clinics shutting down in Texas. And so people couldn't get what they needed. 
And so they got it later, which is just makes things so much more complicated. And, you know, the health risks in- increase and so Absolutely. ridiculous. And it's more expensive too. Yeah. You know, the later you have an abortion, the more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really fascinating about the pandemic. And I wonder what additional podcasts that will lead to for you as you move forward. Is this a podcast you're hoping to do for a long time? Or did you have like X number of episodes in mind? I originally had planned to do a first season of somewhere between six and 10 episodes. This was my pre-pandemic plan that I would have produced all in one go. So then I would have released them week after week for like eight weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, Then once the pandemic hit and I decided to go forward, I did kind of produce my first three episodes in a chunk. But after that, I've been producing them as I go and releasing a new episode every month usually which mostly just has to do with my, (laughs) the time I have to work on it. Um, So I do still think that after 10 episodes, I'm going to call that the first season, probably take a little break, uh, but just to plan out the second season, because Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how long this podcast will last, but there's a lot more than 10 topics to cover (laughs) when it comes to abortion access in the U.S., so. That's so true. I remember thinking when I started, like, okay, like I know some things I can talk about, but eventually I'm going to run out of things. (laughs) Like that doesn't happen. (laughs) That's impossible. Um, Tell us about some of your written journalism work and like, what are some of the things that you've found and been surprised by or stories you want to share in in that field? Yeah. Well, early in the pandemic in March, um, I wrote at that time about how abortion providers were working really hard to continue providing care in those early days of the pandemic. And the clinic shutdowns in Texas actually happened while I was reporting that story, which had been rejected by one editor before I placed it at a second publication. And the reason it was rejected is they basically told me that the story wasn't dire enough yet, that they weren't interested in it until clinics were shutting down. And that's a huge problem with the way abortion is often covered in the media because there's only a story when something really bad happens. <laughs> Which means it's impacted so many more families. Exactly, it's too late, right? My view is that it's too late if you're waiting to report on things until they're really bad. And that's exactly why so many abortion restrictions have just flown under the radar. And also I hear a lot from abortion providers that that also increases stigma Um, and it confuses people and it makes them think that abortion is not legal in their state, Um, particularly when we have these you know, six week, eight week bans being passed now that are not constitutional. So none of them have been enacted, but it's not always clear enough when mainstream publications report on that. And so it confuses people and it makes them think that they can't access abortion. Um, And then one thing that comes to mind, one of the restrictions actually that has totally flown under the radar that I reported on for Vice, I think back in 2019, Um, toward the end of 2019 is abortion reporting laws, Mm. which are something that most people don't know exists. Or think Um, of. 
Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is not my world. Like my world is mental health after, but I just, it's not something I would think about. Mm -hmm. So many states and more and more states all the time have passed various kinds of abortion reporting laws that usually require a provider to submit a report to the state every single time they perform an abortion. Now that is like, (laughs) there is no similar requirement for almost any other kind of medical procedure. I mean, doctors have to report usually when they, you know, diagnose somebody with certain kinds of infectious diseases, they report that to the CDC, uh, you know, or sometimes the state public health authority. But, you know, can you imagine if, a dentist had to report every time they did a root canal. Right. You know, it's it's one of those extremely targeted kind of laws that is meant to stigmatize abortion, to bury abortion providers under a mountain of paperwork. Uh, because in some states, it's a very simple form. In other states, it's like you have to attach the ultrasound. You have to fill out all this information about what kind of... Um, procedure was used, which these forms have all kinds of things listed that are not even real abortion procedures. Um, So it's just this intentionally long form that a provider or somebody in their office has to do every time they perform an abortion. And then more and more, they're collecting quite a bit of demographic information. And several states are releasing reports, basically, on the people who have abortions in their state. And it's a huge privacy issue. It's so invasive, especially in rural areas, because, you know, all the data is anonymized. No one is supposed to be able to be identified. But think about it, like say that you are a black woman who lives in a rural area, and you're between the ages of 18 and 29. And you're one of only like two or three black women who lives in that area between those ages. Somebody could look at that report and guess that you may have had an abortion. Um, And so even if that would never happen, it's extremely invasive. It intimidates people and it stigmatizes abortion, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then some some states also have a form that the patient has to fill out. So there's the form that the provider has to fill out. And then a lot of times it's the patient who has to fill out all that demographic information. And some of the states, again, the form is really involved and it asks a lot of really invasive questions about like past pregnancies and birth. In at least one case, I saw a form that asks, uh, basically, is this pregnancy a result of a sexual assault? Um, So it's really disturbing, really invasive. Um, and it's something that a lot of people just don't realize exists. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I, I imagine that it's like you, you kind of commit yourself to a project and then just keep peeling back layers. I have no idea what you're going to find next. How do you manage? Um, so my world is coaching. And I've noticed how much more coaching I've had to do of myself these days. Like this week in particular, two things came up around crisis pregnancy centers. 
and there's one in New York that I just found yesterday and their website is so deceiving. Like it's the, I use air quotes in the podcast, but like best one I've seen yet at covering up the fact that it's really a Christian organization with an agenda. And I had to dig deep to really identify that because essentially they're just tricking women. So I bring this up to say like, how do you manage your own mind around some of this stuff that must be just infuriating to learn about? Like, how do you take care of yourself? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that, well, first of all, that's a topic that I want to devote an entire episode to that I haven't covered yet, actually, is crisis pregnancy centers. Please Um, do. And let me send you the link to this particular one, because I was like, wow, they have taken things to a whole new level here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's totally that's their playbook, right? You know, they more and more are setting up right across the street or right next door to actual abortion clinics. They have people now who dress up like clinic escorts and carry a clipboard and pretend to be clinic escorts and try and get people to come into their fake clinic, which is really scary. Um, But I think feeling like I can get these stories out into the world is a big part of what makes me feel better. Uh, It is really infuriating that abortion is so difficult to access and that people who oppose abortion access are so deceitful in the way that they go about that. And so it is, it does upset me. But another thing that just really sort of refills my own cup is that I feel so honored that so many people have chosen chosen to share their stories with me Mm -hmm. and even though sometimes the stories are really painful and really difficult you know I can tell that they're difficult to share I appreciate that so much that people are willing to be vulnerable with me and to share their own stories because in a lot of cases I think their motivation is similar right they want people to know that these things happen and they, if possible, want to prevent other people from having to go through what they went through. Um, Or, you know, and that, I mean, in reference to stories where abortion was difficult to access because of restrictions or stigma or what have you. And then there are other people who have shared their abortion stories with me where, you know, maybe it was less complicated it was a really simple decision for them and abortion was easy to access. Like somebody that I interviewed who lives in Portland, Oregon, right? Easy relatively to get an abortion there. Um, She had health insurance that paid for it. And she wanted to share that story because, you know, she wants people to know that it can be like that. And that was my story. Like it could not have been easier and paid for. Like the whole thing was just so amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're. I love that that you say like part of what fills my cup is just like holding space for those stories to be told and like sometimes in some cases sharing them with the world and um yeah oftentimes when I see something like that I'm like okay just more reason to keep going just more reason to keep going yeah I had like I had I was saying to somebody yesterday um. I have so much more 
respect in a way for just like flat out pro-life stand in front of the clinic with your sign about God, like, and killing babies. It's, I use the word respect very carefully, <laughs> but what I mean is like, at least they're just out there. Like I have a belief, I'm standing up for my belief. It's these centers that sneak around it and don't just own it. They're not just like, we are a Christian organization that wants to save your baby. Like I can honor that. Like, I don't like it, but I can honor it. I can be like, I hear you. I got a message I want to tell the world too. It's that like, oh, every once in a while, I just notice myself so infuriated. I'm like, all right, you need some self-care girl. You need some self-care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah, it is infuriating. And this is sort of this is a much repeated point. I'm far from the first person to say this, but if people were really serious about wanting to prevent abortions, they would be really serious about universal health care, universal child care, comprehensive sex education, um, you know, <laughs> contraceptive research, because frankly, all the contraceptive methods that we have are flawed in their own ways. Um, and of course, those are very rarely the same people. Now, that said, I still think that even in a utopian society where everybody had access to healthcare and sex ed and contraception, there would still be a need for abortion. So I don't personally see lowering the abortion rate or eliminating abortion as any sort of goal because I don't think there's anything wrong with abortion. But, you know, I could at least have more respect for someone who says, instead of, I wanna stop people from having abortions, like I'm gonna offer real alternatives. And I don't mean the way that crisis pregnancy centers will like give you some diapers and formula. Yeah, I just had <laughs> you know? someone reach out to me this week who like said, I went to this pregnancy center and they sent me home with baby clothes. I was like, okay, deep breath. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, yeah, it's, it is really important. There's so many important conversations to have in all of this. And thank you for having some on your podcast and continuing to do the research and the journalism and shine some light on the underknown facts that, that are in many ways really comforting to know because it breaks down that I'm not alone story which is so much of what people come to me with. It's like, I'm the only one. I remember being myself being like, I must be the only mom who would really choose abortion. Mm -hmm. ridiculous, such a ridiculous thought. And then you're like, oh, over 60% of them. <laughs> right. You look at the statistics. Yeah, so <laughs> sometimes statistics can just be so comforting, mm -hmm. um, even when you're not really like a math and science kind of person. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the good kind of abortion reporting, right? It's not like the state wants to know everything about you, but the kind of high quality statistics that we get from Gutmacher and other reputable sources. I do think that helps people feel less alone. And, you know, my ultimate goal, I mean, the thing that makes me happiest is when an abortion storyteller that I've interviewed tells me that they liked the episode that's the best compliment I could get. Mm. I think the second best compliment I can get is when somebody tells me 
wow, I had no idea. Like, again, using the example of my first ever episode, one of the things that we talk about in that episode is that an in-clinic first trimester abortion takes less than five minutes. It's really quick. And a friend of mine texted me and said, I had no idea. So I love, I love those moments. And I hope that it makes people feel more comfortable talking about abortion so that maybe someday we have less of the sort of like awkward deer in headlights look <laughs> when it gets brought up in conversation. I mean, that little statistic right there, big little statistic is like, okay, well, the story in my mind might not match the fact that it takes five minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just kind of levels the playing field. It's like, okay, maybe there's some ways I'm not looking at this. Mm-hmm. So awesome. Is there anything else you want to share today um, about your show or your work or just like stuff that you've learned in your journalism that you think would be helpful for one of my listeners to hear? Let me think. Well, the first thing I'll say is that I'm always interested in hearing from people who have an abortion story that they want to share. So people are always welcome to reach out to me and share They can, you know, DM Access Podcast on Twitter or Instagram, or I have a Proton Mail, which is a secure email if anybody wants um, to contact me that way. It's accesspodcast at protonmail.com. And let's see. I guess one of the things that I have most learned or that most stands out to me through all my reporting on abortion, which is not a surprise probably to anybody who's had an abortion, but I think is surprising because we don't talk about it, is the fact that, you know, birth, miscarriage, abortion, all of these things exist on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. So in so many different ways, we isolate abortion as this unique thing that's kind of unlike anything else, right? It's a difficult decision in a way that no other medical decision is difficult uh, or it's a difficult experience in the way that no other uh, experience is difficult. Now that is true in terms of the legal restrictions around it. (laughs) Getting an abortion is harder than doing almost anything else in this country, but What I hear so much from researchers, but also from real people that I talk to is that it's really part of the spectrum. Pregnancy decision-making occurs on a spectrum. It's very individual, but to a lot of people, you know, as you said, there are so many parents who have abortions. And I talk to them and people don't necessarily view it as like, oh yeah, you know, I had two babies and then I had an abortion, dun, dun, dun. It's just like a spectrum of reproductive decision across your life, right? You had three pregnancies, two ended in a birth, one ended in an abortion. Um, Or there are people who like medication abortion because they view it as natural, right? You're just triggering a miscarriage the cultural ideas that we have about abortion don't really line up with people's actual experiences when they have abortions. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. Um, 
I know that myself, I told myself abortion was hard for a long time. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And in some ways, I still think that's true. But there was, there was a point where I was like, it wasn't actually hard at all. <laughs> like, yeah. it was everything I thought about it that made it hard. Like nothing about it was hard. It mm-hmm. just was a decision I made in my life for myself yeah. and my family and my body. Um, and so I love that you, that you brought that up. I think you use the word complicated or, but for me, it was like hard. I just kept saying yeah. it was so hard. And every time I said it was so hard, I felt like a hero. I was like, I'm so amazing because I got through this hard thing. But like, I am so amazing, but not because I got through a hard thing, just because I'm human. Like, and I had a human experience. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing is, it is a hard decision for some people, right? I mean, the episode I'm working on right now, actually, that's coming out um, next week. So the first week of March um, is about people who have complicated feelings about their own abortions but don't want their stories to be used to justify abortion restrictions as Ooh, they so often that is are. My life. Yeah so I think that people yes. who do have complicated feelings or who do feel that it was a hard choice deserve to have those stories heard too yeah. and not politicized. Yeah. Just the way that people who felt like it was an easy decision over and done with also deserve to have that heard and not have people say, oh, but didn't you feel guilty? Yeah. You know, or don't you think about what that child would be like now, you know, or whatever kind of guilt trip they usually get hit with. Totally. I resisted doing this work for a long time because I didn't want it to be used against access, right? And already there's articles written about me by pro-life organizations that are like, see, abortion makes people sad. It's a terrible thing. I'm like, no, sad's just a human emotion. I don't regret it. I'm allowed to feel sad. Like, don't use that against the argument. So I, I get that too. I can't wait to listen to that episode because um, I really put off this work for a long time because I was like, they're going to use me. I still think that sometimes they're going to use me. Actually, a lot of the language on this last um, crisis pregnancy center I found I was like it's almost like they took my language and put it on a website but really they have an agenda yeah oh <laughs> absolutely so unfor- it's just the unfortunate truth but it doesn't take away from all those people who have those complicated feelings exactly yeah thank you so much um, I look forward to continuing to listen to your podcast and I'm excited that more people will now find it and um, always here if you need a fellow abortion uh, pioneer in the world. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's nice you. to meet you through Zoom. Yeah, you too. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. And as always, please consider sharing rating and reviewing this podcast. It helps me reach a wider audience and invites more people to thrive after abortion. If you're someone who chose abortion and find yourself struggling, hiding, or wishing you could move beyond your experience, head over to my website and book a free call. We'll talk about how you can start living the life you made your choice 